A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Almost Famous, the podcast where I explore the subject of fame by talking to people who've experienced it themselves and ask them how it has affected their own journey as well as the lives of those around them. My guest today is musician, events organiser, all-round ideas person, and my own brother, Tobias Slater. As a teenager, Tobias signed to Virgin EMI with his band Catch, leading to an appearance on Top of the Pops, number ones in Thailand and Indonesia, and a place on the Smash Hits tour. Tobias went on to have a brief solo career before pivoting into the world of events, founding London's biggest dress-up and vintage events brand, White Mischief. Tobias has since co-founded Kinky Salon London and the Summer House Weekend, queer-friendly, sex-positive events exploring sexuality, intimacy, creativity, and self-expression. Tobias is also what I call a pure, almost famous guest, in that he grew up around fame as well as having experience of it himself. His mother, Stephanie De Sykes, was a singer and actress in the 70s, having a number two hit single called Born With A Smile On My Face, and his father, Stuart Slater, was lead singer of Liverpool band The Mojos, who had some hits in the 60s. In the 80s and 90s, Tobias's stepfather was Angus Deaton, comedy actor and original host of Have I Got News For You. So with lots to talk about, I'd like to give a huge, almost famous welcome to Tobias Slater. How are you, my brother? I'm doing great, thank you. So uh, you won't know this from the edit audience, but I fucked up that intro more than any intro I've ever done. But Tobias, what did you think of it, more importantly? I thought maybe I could edit bits of it up and could use it as adverts on a local radio station. Also, it was weird hearing you talk about people in our family as if they only were related to me and you had nothing to do with it. I know, but I feel like I had to do what I deemed to be a professional intro and assume that there are lots of people listening who haven't listened to the kind of episodes I've done or the trailers I've done where I talk about my own family. They should probably stop this podcast now and go back and listen to the previous episodes because there are going to be spoilers in this one. I completely agree. And of course, subscribe, rate and leave comments on all of on all of the podcast publishing platforms. Uh, we're in the middle of COVID-19 isolation lockdown. How are you? How is it affecting your life and your career? Um, it's not really affecting my life that differently because I spend a lot of my time in one room anyway. Uh it's affecting my career in the sense that anyone who does events or any sort of performance is now unemployed. Yeah, but you're doing a lot of online stuff now, aren't you? Yeah, so I think, like a lot of people, anyone who had been creative-minded and thinking, oh, it'd be really interesting to be doing online events through video, but we'd never really done about done it, you know, it, it's just an idea. I think the minute lockdown happened, it stopped being an idea and started being a necessity. So... Uh, I'm doing some parties on video services, including one called Splash Mob, which is where we invite people to put their device in their bathroom. And so we have all the performers and all the guests in their bathroom or in one person's case last time, a paddling pool. And I think someone else had a sauna as well. So it's like trying to recreate the atmosphere of being a swimming pool or a spa, but, uh, or, or a hot tub, but in your own house. And is there an audience for it? Is there money to be made from it? Is it just distraction, keeping time, something that you could carry on after, after lockdown? I don't think it's going to go away. So in terms of that last question, I think now that the cat is out of the bag, when it comes to doing video events, I think they'll carry on. We also do speed meeting parties. So we do something called quickies, something called slowies and something called groupies. And all of those parties, I think, will continue to happen because you can meet someone from wherever they are in the world. You don't have to leave your house. Uh, if you find that you don't like anyone, it's not like a really depressing trudge home. Uh, so I think those things will carry on. I think, you know, of course, there is a bit of a kind of 
initial experience of excitement to just connect with any other person to just see anyone else any performer doing anything right now and that will probably disappear but the opportunities for being creative in this new medium are huge that's what I'm really excited about actually you know whether you're a musician or a visual artist or uh, an event producer or a filmmaker there's so much you can do with people over live video uh, and I think this will be the seen as the fulcrum you know the balance point when everything changed as for money uh there is money to be made but it's a fraction of what people are prepared to pay for a real life event and there's no selling stuff to people like drinks and everyone is skint right now as well so uh it's i think it's partially distraction but it's also partially kind of creating a service to stop people going completely mental yeah i was going to ask do you see it as a uh, as something that you're doing for your you know to keep yourself busy for your own mental health to help other people through it in that sense too yeah both of those things i think uh people have a need to connect with each other to become intimate to make new friends and that is part of the philosophy of the summer house events anyway so at a time when nearly every developed nation around the world is locking down and stopping people connecting. I think it's extra important. And um, and it is also really exposed to me that there are a lot of people who have really desperately wanted to get involved in queer, sex positive, progressive communities, but have been too scared to do it. Or maybe they're not in a part of the world where it's easy for them to do it. And the online events have made that possible. Uh, so that's really exciting i think there is a you know, there is a sort of mental health benefit for people uh much more than the you know much more than the financial benefit yeah and where can the audience go to uh find some of these events so if they go to the summerhouseweekend.com forward slash events they'll see the listing of what we've got coming up including we do a weekly uh movie party called watch it where we just put on two really crappy movies back to back and then everyone can chat and snark about it and slag it off in the uh, in the text chat okay brilliant well make sure you go there guys um interestingly when i first or when we discussed you coming on the podcast you said to me you'd only be interested if it would take you outside your comfort zone what did you mean by that i think it was you were saying how you sometimes give participants the questions in advance and allow people to say if they don't want to talk about a particular subject and that's what i was referring to um, I don't think it's worth doing an interview if everything's going to be pre-screened and you're only going to be talking about things that are familiar. I think it'd be boring for everyone involved. Yeah, so uh, I do give people questions in advance if they or their agent request it. Uh, it has been known. I do think it's an interesting point, though, especially to let the audience know as well. And in terms of kind of explaining my own comfort levels to doing this podcast is... Uh, I think there is a difficulty sometimes when you're creating something like this where you're not paying any of the guests. In fact, I've only paid one guest so far in the three series we've done. When you're not paying the guests and they're doing you a favour, basically, it does um, create a kind of uh, almost like a barrier between you where maybe sometimes I admit there are questions I wish I felt comfortable enough to ask. Um, so I guess kind of what you're saying is is kind of a little bit of a take on that, really. I guess I've listened to several of the episodes. Uh, I mean, I've listened to all of these episodes in your podcast. And uh, the ones that I like the most are the ones where people are being kind of unpredictable or being honest about themselves, or even better, spilling the beans on relatives um, or, 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 or celebrities. And I don't think you need to do a gotcha necessarily. But uh, I think if, if people have rehearsed things in advance, you, you know, that's something that um, you know, it feels like you're just going to someone's TED talk, basically. I don't think they rehearse things. I think it's more like they want to know that the questions aren't going to be uh, things that they don't want to talk about. But also, to be fair, before I speak to everyone, I also say if there's anything you feel uncomfortable talking about, just stop me. Um, but that hasn't actually happened yet. Something you just mentioned leads to this, actually. Um, I wanted to kind of almost for the audience's benefit, talk about the fact that as a family, I mean, even me and you, actually, and I, I'd say, 
as brothers, we, we the way I describe us is we're close, you know, love each other, but we have very different lives and interests. So it's not like we spend a lot of time together or have ever spent a lot of time together. But when we do, we're always close. But I wanted to kind of say, actually, the subject of fame and growing up around fame to some degree, and then certainly your experience of fame isn't really something we've ever discussed. Um, which I also think makes for potentially an interesting podcast. Why do you think that is, though? Why have we not discussed it? Yeah. You never asked. Yeah, but we, I mean, but, you know, we have the same parents and family and you've never brought it up either. And maybe it's deep trauma. Well, I mean, I sense I sense sarcasm in that, but but seriously. No, I, I think there is. I think there is some of that. I think there's a mixture of different experiences. One is is that it's only one part of my life but it is a part of my life uh there's all sorts of emotions from uh you know mourning and loss and grief to embarrassment and shame to um feeling like it's a part of my history or possibly some aspects that I've blocked out also sometimes just things that you know I've forgotten about which is um you know there's stuff that people remember details that I've completely forgotten. So all of those emotions are there. I think the other thing is it's not that important. Uh, I'm, you know, I was never quote unquote famous uh, and not big enough for it to, you know, to matter that greatly except to a small number of people. Yeah. I want to get, I'm definitely going to get on to uh, catch and um, that side of it. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, your experience or our experience of um, growing up around fame a little bit first. How would you, just to the audience, how would you describe our family just so they could get an idea of, of the the dynamics between us all? God, this bit sounds monumentally loaded because then I start thinking about which relatives might be listening. Don't worry about that. Don't, don't, don't let that stop you. I think it's important. I think it's personally think it's important for neither of us to have a filter on this if we can, if we can try. There was an anecdote that uh, our mum used to tell I can't remember who it was whether it was a, a conversation that she had with with our dad but it was something like um, you know I said it was it was something like a, a, an anecdote which I'm going to attribute to our mum she'll be horrified because she'll say she, didn't, she never said that that when our parents were splitting up um, she said something like, you know, I can't believe our kids are going to come from a broken home. And our dad said, oh, don't be silly. 50% of parents split up these days. Right. Um, and I think one of the first things that comes into mind when you talk about family is something about a kind of convoluted couple of, you know, slightly dysfunctional family units that I think kind of cross all of our related bits of family, uh, including over to our sister, you know, so that's how I imagine things. It's sort of almost like a mosaic of slightly, slightly complicated, fragmented um, connections. Yeah, so uh, for the audience, we have a, a half-sister on my dad's side. My dad was uh, married pretty young and had a daughter. She's called Tracy. She lives in LA. She also works in music. Um, interesting, You so, so talking about the mosaic... Uh, how much would you say then that in terms of our mum and dad, their experiences of fame or their quest for fame had, uh, how much do you think that had an effect on how they were are as people and as parents uh, in terms of particularly I've talked about in the past about, you know, uh, personally feeling like uh, and, and having um, had some therapy about this, personally feeling like a relationship isn't really a relationship unless it's dramatic. And I feel like that probably comes from that kind of stuff. What do you think? So you said quest for fame. I'm not entirely sure the degree to which I felt that there was a big sort of crystal maze battle for fame going on in the family, at least not from our parents. I think with what the way I imagine it is almost this quite sort of low level kind of C level, you know, just like kind of crappy level of fame where I would say definitely to like a, I remember saying to school teacher, you know, that 
he said, well, you know, what do your parents do for a living? It was like a show and tell type thing at school. And I said, oh, my mum's on the TV. She does the Honey Nut Loops advert. And he was like, oh, yes, you know, as if to say you're obviously, I have to say loopy. Or I was going to say nuts. I just can't help myself. I'm so sorry. Um, as if to say, you know, that I was um, probably just quite mad. Um, but actually, I was boasting, you know, so the kind of thing I'd l- likely to be proud of in terms of my mother's achievements were most likely to be that she was on the Jimmy, um, sorry, the Jim will fix it theme tune, which is not something to be so proud of these days, um, rather than rather than her looking for fame, um, which I wasn't, I didn't get that impression, you know, because I think she was working, doing session singing, rather than, um, you know, trying to get us into um, premieres. Yeah. Uh, although I do remember going to the Batman premiere and more importantly, when we were taken to going live and got to meet Bros. Yeah, and I remember going to the Muppet Christmas Carol premiere. So it has happened. That seems a bit later on. I feel more like actually, and I, I think this is right, uh, what you just said is right. I, I didn't get the sense from my mum, It certainly when I was alive, of a quest for fame. And also the way she talks about it, neither back in the day, she kind of talks about it as having almost fallen into that side of things, having wanted to be a, a singer and an actress, and, and that's what she wanted to do. But with my dad, or with our dad, Stuart, I got the sense... Even after, you know, even when I was alive, when he'd moved into the music industry and A&R, I definitely got a sense regularly of him talking about celebrity a lot, talking about who he signed, who he met. Uh, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, just just a sense. And, you know, um, also after he left the record industry or towards the back end of that, talking about wanting to start up a management company where he would manage TV presenters and stuff like that. So I, I do get a sense, and, and also I think that sh- has shifted onto me to some degree, that fame and celebrity was a big part of his life. Yeah, I think that's probably, that is probably right about our dad. But some of the stories that I would most likely tell about my dad, about our dad, such as the fact that he wrote a song that David Bowie recorded on a David Bowie album, he never told us. So it's strange the stories that he would tell, such as, you know, I've met, just had lunch with the guy from Living in a Box or Ultravox, but he wouldn't tell us um, that, you know, one of the biggest singers of the 20th century recorded his song. But was that because he'd forgotten? Yeah, it's possible. Um, it's um... Because he definitely, he told a story, which is, I think, the most hilarious story he's ever told, and I'll probably get it wrong, but where he was at a, he was at a reunion, a Chrysalis reunion, which was the record company he worked at. And um, uh, one of his old receptionists came up to him and said, oh, Stuart, you know, I haven't seen you for so long. I, you used to be so funny. I remember when you, you know, you came up to me one day and said, oh, God, I remember nothing about the 70s at all. And then <laughs> he said back to, oh, my God, that's funny because it's it's the 80s. I really don't remember. <laughs> I mean, is that about fame or is that just about about being i remember the expression rock and roll got used a lot yeah i think it's potentially about rock and roll and um cocaine intake probably and alcohol intake realistically i never quite understood what rock and roll meant because i don't know i think that's very much of a certain era i think i think that one of the perspectives that i have on the music industry is being able to see how it has been during my lifetime versus how it was when, you know, the stories I hear from our parents. And I think in both instances with, with our mum, she was able to just sort of luck in to a music career where you would expect to be selling, you know, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of singles, um, which she did. And our dad, who um, his experience of the music industry was that it sounds like, you know, it was partially some sort of party. Um, and those were not mine. You know, that by the time I got into uh, the music industry, it was certainly at the tail end of any of that kind of stuff. Um, I was, you know, I was right on that juncture where both the selling of albums and singles was a, was about to fall through the floor, and also, you know, it started to being an actual job. Yeah, I mean, my my instinct is that the use of the term rock and roll, which I remember being used, funnily enough, quite a lot when I was a kid, was probably there to cover. You know, when when telling anecdotes when the kids were around, probably there to cover, you know, the realities of what party he was talking about or bragging about or something like that. I don't know. Um, you have the name droppings that have happened from our dad. Generally, I just find they don't end up being that impressive, um, and sometimes they're attached to anecdotes that kind of s- sound quite sad, like the uh, the one about 
he lost his driving license because he was drunk having gone out for a drink with Debbie Harry. Yeah. So I remember the bit that I remember from that is, oh, you lost your driving license, not you were out for a date with Debbie Harry. Yeah, but quite a lot of people would probably look at it the other way. I mean, certainly, and I've said this before on this podcast, a lot of my friends, for instance, have always said, I wish my your dad was my dad. I think that's deemed to be quite a cool story to people if you're not their son. <laughs> you should have told it to the magistrate. <laughs> <laughs> he lost his license for a year and I remember him having a driver. What? Did he? Did he have a driver? He had some kind of driver that I assume the record company were paying for. I mean, that sounds preposterous, doesn't it? Anyway. It, it does. Uh, I, I actually... That gives an impression of our childhood, which is absolutely like, you know, no matter how great things were, uh, you know, I, for example, at one point we had an Addison Lee account with Catch the Band, you know, so that was pretty good. We had taxis. Yeah. But that's, you know, I there haven't been drivers just so that people... No, no, no. This. And it, no. I think it was. I think it was just more like our employee has lost his driving license. And we need him to get places. But anyway, um, it's a. It's it's gone into an interesting area because I because I'm a couple of years younger than you. I have no recollection at all of um, living with our dad, and obviously because you became a musician and I didn't, and both him and our mum were musicians. I'm interested to know what memories you have of uh living while he was living you know as a family and and any recollections you have of um getting into music because of that or what what getting into music kind of is to you or your your recollections of that i guess so there was definitely always music around at every occasion so i think i remember some sing-alongs around the piano it's also quite hard to tear away what are action memories versus what are things that i've just watched many times on home video um, but there was, you know, they they would write songs together. So there were quite a lot of demo tapes uh, and to young people, tape is um, what music is on um, back in the 70s and 80s. But so they had a lot of those lying around. And I think even as I got older, I would still go and kind of go back and listen to some of the music they'd done. And there was a big vinyl collection um, that I would that I would raid. I don't remember many instances of uh, our parents living together, but you know, I definitely remember music being around and it not being a a special chore, except for when I did piano lessons. And I was, you know, I think I feel really caught out by my music teacher because at some point she said, "Oh, you know, you'd be better off not trying to learn and just giving it up because you obviously like mucking around on the piano, but you don't." actually like applying yourself and that was actually quite insightful um wait what does that what does that mean you'd be better off what you'd be better off giving up trying to read music or you'd be better off giving up the piano yeah so i was doing regular piano lessons you know going through the grades but found it a real chore doing you know sort of music books and yeah reading music and learning things in a formal way but i did gravitate towards writing songs and creating things so I think um she was quite insightful about that can you can you is it can you put words to what that feels like as a child gravitating to you know in your words gravitating towards writing songs like is that something that just came naturally and you can't put words to it as someone who's who can't write songs basically um I mean tell me because I can't write songs you have written some songs I've written some lyrics to other people's music, but I've never written songs. Do you ever have those moments when you're walking down the street and a melody pops into your head or you just find yourself humming something over and over again? Mm, I don't think original melodies, no. I mean, I'm not saying that a lot of the stuff I've written is entirely original either. No, but what I mean is somebody else, a, a, a song I've heard, yeah, but no, not my own. So I think even now when I'm sort of out of practice, it's quite hard for me to not find myself going over tunes or sometimes fragments of lyrics. There just seems to be a presence of music and it's a question of kind of formalising that. Normally when the earworm gets too annoying, it'll just burrow out of my head and the best way to smash it dead is to actually record it somehow. And do you think realistically that's because in your early years that's what you were surrounded by? And also I wanted to mention at this point, you, you mentioned... Um, how our mum and dad wrote songs together. They did actually quite successfully, and I'm not sure I've mentioned this that much, but they um, were in the Eurovision Song Contest. I think it was probably less 
well, actually, it's probably gone full circle and now is cool again, but it was kind of pretty, probably a pretty big deal back then. And they used to write loads and loads of songs together and, and were in that a few times. But do you think your creativity comes from being around that in those early years? I think so. I think there's a couple of things. I definitely want to come back to Eurovision, actually, if we can, because um, I'm a big fan and I think there's quite a lot in there, what you said. But talking about what generates creativity, I think there's a sense of permission. And I think having permission to generate stuff creatively, and it doesn't matter how crap it is, it doesn't have to be about something, that's quite a good and healthy environment. And I think we had that. Some other people might have that in the world of craft or computer coding. It just happened that music was what we had around. And I've learned as I've got older that some people, you know, friends or people I've been in relationships with, haven't given themselves permission or had family permission to to do their own thing you know there's always been pressure for them to follow a career path or an academic path and if that comes to an end they sometimes find themselves absolutely terrified like what am I going to do and several people have said to me you know you seem to have no plan no clue what you're doing you're just randomly moving from one thing to the next and you don't seem upset about it and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that we grew up with, you know, more or less self-employed um, parents and, and uh, parental figures. And in various ways, there was a a permissive environment or, or one where it was okay to be creative or okay to be, just to let it hang out in some way. And do you have the sense that that early creativity, being able to do that, would always be backed up by positivity, which meant that you would continue to create? I think generally, I, I think um, I, I'm a huge Michael Jackson fan. And I remember in that uh, BBC documentary uh, from Alex Petridis that was a few months ago, they talked about how his father was you know, brutally uh, strict and you know perfectionist and, and would push them. And I think we didn't have any of that. So I think there is a degree to which if one wanted to create, you know, really um if, if 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 a parent was going to like make really high end performers and songwriters out of everyone we would have to be hot house and we definitely didn't have that that wasn't the impression that i got but i think there was positivity and encouragement yeah and do you think how do you think you would have reacted if it was a bit more like joe jackson <laughs> pretty badly i think i think i you know i at school i tended to be someone who you know If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Like, I shat my pants a lot when things got too scary and I had a, a quite sort of strict, I went to quite a strict kind of almost Roald Dahl-esque um, boys private school at one point and didn't really cope very well under those kind of um, uh, under that kind of situation I think I'm more of a carrot guy than a stick person in hindsight looking back at those years was it character building at all though has it helped you through some difficult times in terms of having suffered from you know bullying and difficulty at that school has it enabled you to bounce back from things quicker I don't know because I don't know what I'm comparing it against but what I would say is that I can't imagine what it, I, it must be incredible growing up in today's society where there, you know, there is a natural questioning of things like gender and sexuality and societal messages and TV and, and podcasts and um, all, all sorts of books um, for young people are kind of reinforcing uh, very non-binary ideas of how we can be whereas you know I went to almost slightly Victorian or, or maybe like wartime sort of school where it was the opposite of all that so I, I I don't think it's helped me bounce back I think you know there's a big part of me that you know has has fought against it and is trying to be part of helping people um, away from um, these really formal rigid ideas of who we are and um, but I am, you know, we both had a very privileged upbringing. I'm, you know, I don't, I, I think that uh, I feel very lucky to have had a, a fairly um, dream ex- experience uh, in many ways. You know, there were, there were definitely upsetting and traumatic things, but we rarely worried about where, you know, food was going to come from or, you know, com- comfort was not in question. Yeah. And, um, I wanted to know whether you actually have memories of li- of him telling you stuff about times with our mum, of him telling you stuff about the Eurovision times, or whatever, because I've never had a conversation with him ever about uh, his time as, a, you know, writing songs with our mum, his time being with our mum, living with our mum. The, the most I've ever had is him saying, how's your, how's your mother? And But I wonder if because you guys shared music whether over the years having spent more time together in that because of that you've actually had more discussions about that stuff not really i think there's something interesting about the intersection between the emotional reality of a relationship and in this instance like the creative output because i think with our mother it's very easy to talk about the emotional archaeology you know you can kind of dig up all of the stories and the feelings and all of the stuff that was underneath the lyrics and the anecdotes that were behind the moment. Whereas with our dad, it, it was very much confined with to talking about the, you know, the, the factual accuracy, the, the sort of anecdotes, the technical stuff about making a song, the people who were behind it, particularly, he was always into talking about that. Um, you know, the, the music business side of it. I don't remember him talking about much of the sort of feelings that emerge from something. Um, and what about just in terms of their time together at all? Any conversations you've had with him at all about that stuff? No, you know, I, the stuff that really comes to mind for me is more that we would talk about, um, you know, if Vanilla Ice came out, we would talk about that. Uh, you know, that's what sticks in my mind. Very abstract things, actually, that didn't really relate to our family at all. Like, like you've alluded to, I think, um there was a reticence about talking about feelings and maybe even talking about the past and how do you feel about that do you do you wish that was different i feel that that's just how it is um i don't because our our dad's got dementia uh, you know it's not generally possible to have that conversation now 
although you know it is sometimes possible to trigger his attention and enjoyment with an old song which is something that that my sister and uh, our sister and uh, I've done recently you know so I don't wish that it was different um but I am aware that you know some families have that kind of emotional connection and others don't that but the one way that we could connect is is putting on a you know a good song um and I and I also a lot of the memories that I have about my childhood do connect to certain pieces of music you know by you know by other artists and and also for my mum and something that is still a really big important part of my life is is uh the the disco music that uh, that our mum made and that's something that's you know I'm still very connected to I think much what is that I don't know much about her, her disco her disco output yeah so uh she was with she was part of a group of backing singers who were called the Birds of London who recorded music on a bunch of pretty legendary uh, disco records by artists like Sarone and Alec Costandinos. And these are the sort of progenitors to dance music. So they, they were amongst the first records to have like a really prominent four on the floor dance beat that you could dance to. But they also had these lush strings and you know these sort of uh, backing vocals including some really weird and creepy stuff where the producer is getting them to make sex noises and talking about the producer's uh, penis being the size of a banana and all sorts of weird stuff so anyway that music was just lying around and I and I sort of really attached myself to it but now if I meet people who have big music fans or big disco fans they will always have heard of those records and they get sampled all the time there's lo- you know there's there's records by like all sorts of big artists throughout the decades that sample these things um and even to the point where i've you know been at parties and even been having sex with people with this music playing uh which is that's weird yeah it's kind of weird um and it's it's also the other thing i think connects to the story i was saying about our dad is our mum never talks about this so she doesn't put that front and center either it's not it's not the stuff of which she's most proud although it's probably the stuff that a lot of musicians remember the most um so i think that's an interesting thing about how when people are creative maybe the stuff that they remember the stuff that they're most proud of or the stuff that makes most impact on their life might not be the stuff that stands the test of time yeah and um, just going back to a little bit of what you're saying about your, you know, a, a slightly non-emotional connection with our father. How do you think that has affected your relationships in terms of how you form relationships yourself? Do you think it's had any kind of effect on that? I don't think that our parental relationships are that much different to what goes on in all sorts of families. And I think um there may have been impact but nothing that's really significant i think that my later life was definitely more impactful in to the fact that i ended up non-monogamous and exploring more kind of progressive relationship styles and part of you know the queer community and those things are much more to do with the later part of my life except for i think um you know i think we had we didn't have a nuclear family and we had a a, a couple of father figures where there was, uh, you know, where it, they were non-monogamous relationships, you know, uh, that they had, but just uh, maybe without the consent of our mum. And so she was very focused on the idea of fidelity and that seemed to be quite important to her. And so, you know, the heartbreak that she was going through um, when the men in her life didn't live up to that, and that was something that was always very present. I think that um, is heightened when like, the newspapers are brought into it um, because it begins to become less family mythology and then suddenly kind of uh, for, for, for a few days a sort of public mythology. Yeah, so that kind of naturally brings us on to Angus. What is your, what is your kind of recollection of him coming into our life? Because I think even for me, I was, I'm kind of too young to remember. I just have kind of memories of him being there rather than it, how it started or anything. Uh, I remember, I think I have a lot more memories from this era onwards, which I think might just be a function of 
me being a little bit older yeah or maybe it just being less upsetting to me so i remember thinking that he was a nice guy he had a big beard uh, <laughs> he had this apartment in belfast park which actually i think anyone in their 20s 30s or even 40s these days would be perfectly happy to have you know um i think he would probably remember it as some sort of bed sit but actually it was you know pretty nice um one bedroom apartment and i remember very vividly uh they went out on a date our parents uh, sorry um our mom and angus would go on dates and we would be put in uh, on a, a mattress or inflatable or something with uh there was a bunch of music of which the pet shop boys um breakthrough album was on there um and also then there was a video collection which was absolutely meticulously uh, indexed with numbers and a, a, a um, what, like a board with sheets of paper where he'd indexed all of these uh, videos that he'd recorded from the TV uh, with numbers and, and, and meticulously labeled stickers. Uh, and Spinal Tap, I think, was on there, the, uh, the, the sort of spoof documentary and airplane which I, I remember you and i watched repeatedly because i think he, i think that was deemed to be uh, acceptable content for kids although i watch it again now it's absolutely chock full of very lewd and sort of frequently slightly racist humor um <laughs> it, things were different back it, then yeah no it's it's and also i don't know if you would give it to sort of six-year-old kids out of the gate these days uh, but because of this, I think because of the slapstick nature of it, that's probably why he decided that was okay. I would have thought, sure. Yeah, exactly. Kind of the phys the physical comedy. Also, just you know, uh, pop quiz. Do you remember which number airplane was in his index collection? Because I do. God no. It was number ten. I'm just a little <laughs> concerned that this is a lot more interesting for us than for the listenership. No, I think it's interesting because for anyone who remembers Angus as a famous person, him coming into the lives as a, as a common law stepfather to two young children, I think makes it interesting. Um, but admittedly, the pop quiz was just for you. I think what I also think is interesting here is even in my head, um, Angus, because of the fact that we kind of ended up fairly estranged, Angus sort of developed sort of there's like a bifurcated thing where Angus as a human being versus Angus as a, just a word or as a kind of idea, they start to split in my head. So it's quite useful to go back and remember the parts where this was definitely a human being uh, who, you know, had no, uh, wasn't someone that anyone had heard of, wasn't someone who'd been in the newspapers at any time, um, except that he did do i remember he did an apple ties commercial and there was something involving pilchards um, yeah i think that was crunchy nut cornflakes advert there was definitely his him sticking his head out of a funnel that's kind of my earliest memory of of seeing him on tv yeah so you know he was doing tv jobs to make a, a bit of money i guess but it wasn't it wasn't really fame uh and i think um you know, I, I think I would have a much better understanding of fame through the lens of him and, and our experience with him, I think, more than with our mum or, or dad, to be honest. Yeah. So then what is your recollection of when he did get famous, which in my memory was when he got the job of Have I Got News For You? And I recollect it all happening pretty quickly and it suddenly becoming part of our lives, which I guess was around like 1990. Yeah, I, I got the impression um, that he... It feels in retrospect almost like a plan, like he did want to develop a certain level of success uh, and wealth and wanted that to be visible quite quickly because the thing that really comes back to my mind was he did adverts um, and he did Have I Got News For You? But something that sticks in my mind is that with he, he, he talked about having asked the have I got news for you team to give him a certain number of suits or ties or something with every episode and also I think he did a some sort of job for a book publishing company and I remember one day 
unlimited boxes of books just turned up in the house. Uh, yeah, and so there was suddenly infinity books uh, that no one could possibly read all of, uh, but they were all the sort of literary classics. These days, you would just have a Kindle where they'd all come on. Um, and and so I got the impression that you know fame or success as a as leverage to get stuff um, was you know was was quite prominent, and that stuck in my mind um, for some reason. And of course, I mean, do you know what? That's really interesting because I really remember those books, and I remember the bookshelf, uh, the bookcase that my mum would no doubt talk about as a as a kind of aspiring interior designer would say that she had designed especially for those books it never crossed my mind the link between a him i think i knew that he'd done this job and got those books but it never crossed my mind that and and well that potentially he would have requested those i guess i guess there is a chance isn't there that maybe they offered them but actually in oh yeah no, it, 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 look i can't i need to make really clear i don't know the details here so yeah it's quite possible yeah but but also but I'm not seeing up for it. I actually think you know having done adverts and done deals myself, I actually think there probably is more chance that he requested them. Isn't this where you can tell your Daniel Beddingfield story? Which one's that? It's about him being on one of those kids shows that you did where he was trying. To, do you remember this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked on a show called Exchange on Children's BBC as a, a runner and Daniel Beddingfield, early Daniel Beddingfield, so got to get through this days. Apologies for anyone under the age of 30 here, by the way, who won't have a clue who we're talking about. Um, he came on the show and he had a pair of, I guess, whatever the back in the day, the version of Beats headphones were, and he refused to take them off because he said, you know, and it was the BBC. So he's saying, you literally can't have these on because they're branded. And he said, no because I will get sent a load of this stuff if I keep them on. That's right. I totally forgotten about that story. Good memory. That's, you know, what's quite ironic about that is, is people, I think people often think that musicians are a lot more successful and wealthy and that their life is a lot more glamorous than they really are. Yeah. And that anecdote is quite good because it reminds me that no matter how well Daniel Benefield was doing, and he had a huge number one, he still wanted to get some electronics company to give him free stuff. Yeah. No matter how successful you are, you can always be skint very quickly again in the music industry. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of stories of people like overspending, but there's also a lot of bands that people really love where, you know, I know that several of those band members are doing regular jobs. Um, so it's interesting to me, like when, you hear these sort of stories because how much are people doing it because they want the attention adulation and how much are they doing it as a way to further their own power and their own access to wealth um yeah i you know i think i think with angus you know there was probably all of the above but i the reason i mention this is i i got the impression that it was quite a quick move into that territory from doing some adverts that no one would have mentioned, you know, doing some adverts, some things like did One Foot in the Grave, I guess, Alexi Sale, yeah. some pretty well-regarded comedy uh, and, and Rowan Atkinson, and then taking a step up into doing a regular TV show. It, it wasn't a kind of organic, slow, growth thing. It really was like when you're on that mainstream TV show on a weekly basis the recognition is so much bigger. And I just got the impression that Angus was very keen to harness that. He was not the same as Paul Merton, you know, who generally, you know, I, I got the impression did not want to project an image of being slick and, you know, high end. Um, yeah, I so guess, that, I guess, I mean, we're talking about ambition. What you feel is that Angus had, had, goal, ambition, yeah. had ambition and goals. Um, Paul Merton will have had that too, but in a different, you know, different route. So kind of slightly more undergroundy stand-up clubs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah. But also had a persona by that point that is just a different kind of persona, I guess. The persona is interesting because, yeah, we all do have personas in our performing roles, and then what degree do we remember as family members our family's persona versus their actual real life personality? So like our dad and his band, the Mojos, they were one of the cooler, 
Mersey Beat bands, they were actually, you know, seen off as quite a kind of aggressive, more gritty band. But it would be hard for me to imagine that, knowing what he's like in real life. Yeah. But also isn't, I mean, to be honest, I've never heard you or any of our family describe the mojos like that. Is It feels to me, maybe this is just me, but it feels to me saying that is just a way of saying they weren't as successful as some of the other Liverpool bands. Yeah, they still had a number six though. So it wasn't like they had a number six doing really cheesy music, whereas our mum did have a very cheesy song. So yeah. um, the persona that people buy into was that it was sort of that he was sort of cool i think the persona that well actually you know what's really weird about mum is that is i think she did actually have a somehow a sexy persona and obviously most people don't see their own parents as sexy but that's mm. sometimes a bit creepy when i look back at old newspaper clippings or sometimes even i think even during our youth people were mentioning you know sexy stephanie de sykes yeah, like my teachers. Oh, right, well, yeah, exactly. I hope yeah. you took good use of that, and that's why you became the head boy. <laughs> I've nothing to do not, with that. Not, not yet mentioned on uh, this podcast, but yes, at my prep school, <laughs> I was head boy, but three people had turned it down. And also, yes, she had gone on some dates with the deputy headmaster, so I'm sure it all helped. Yeah, does that not fit with your, with your persona? No, it fits, it fits perfectly with my persona of having a fucked up childhood. That's what I'm really going for. Something just occurred to me when you mentioned, when you talked about some of that stuff, and I've never thought about this, or if I have, I haven't talked about it, which is I wonder, you know, I wonder whether Angus, when meeting my mum, you know, and bringing this back round to the subject of this podcast, I wonder he was if he was infatuated by the fact that she had been famous and that that was kind of, you know, such a positive in to him, as well as the fact she's a very beautiful woman, and but also whether he was infatuated by that famous aspect and the fact that she had, you know, two kids as baggage was kind of worth the risk based on some of that stuff. Yeah, I think so. That would be my guess. I think he... They met on a, a radio quiz show, I think, and I could imagine that if he was in his 20s, and she was a fair bit older, wasn't she? Yeah, like nine years, eight, nine years, I think. Um, no, Ten years, maybe. He, that she was on the pedestal at that point because she would be the more famous person. She was um, a MILF. <laughs> our mum was, was, was a MILF and is now a, a GILF, I guess. I mean, No, because we haven't had any children. You'd like to be. Yeah. Like, no, I don't. She Actually, interesting, she always claims she doesn't want to be. But I wonder, I, I, I often wonder whether that's true or not. But why else would she beg me, given that she's a like a, a, a solid anti-vaxxer, why would she beg me a few years ago to get the uh, mumps vaccine? Because she was worried that I wouldn't be able to uh, have kids if I ever got mumps. Well, she'd say that's because she doesn't want to, she wants you to be, you know, have all the choices. Anyway, right. carry, on. Carry, carry on, carry on. We were talking about, so, yeah, you're... So, so I, think, I think Angus could plug into her network and could get some of her you know um reflected glory and also you know she was uh financially secure um so i think that's probably right i think it was brave of him to take on uh, something with kids yeah and then so in terms of then when it all broke down and the stuff in the press what is your recollection of that oh yeah yeah sorry, sorry. um Sorry, actually, I wanted to mention another thing uh which is obviously going to make this like a seven hour podcast no no, no it's good it's um, all good um so i said that he you know, I got the sense that in the first chapter, I didn't really understand what was going on. There was another chapter where he left at one point and our mum didn't tell us. And I actually said that he'd gone away on a holiday. It was like he'd gone to Antarctica or something. He was just out of contact for like several months. Right. But he was going to come back sometime. And his computer, which was an Amstrad, uh, probably an Amstrad PCW, pretty... <laughs> early word processor showing your technology it's important in case anyone wants to uh, hire me as a historian of crap computers um he just sort of lay there you know like covered in dust for months and she never told us uh you know so that i was again i sort of confused i got the sense that something weird was going on but i couldn't quite place it i don't remember any of this just so you know do you not i mean do you not even remember it as a 
as a I remember part. the computer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, I was too busy being mute in the corner, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just rolling around in a buggy. By this point, you were actually, uh, you know, a fully self-actualized human in a Spurs kit. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so, and then, then I think at some point they re-established their relationship, and he came back, but they split up again, and things got were acrimonious, and. I think that's the impression I got that it was in that third chapter that things were really uh, pretty terrible. And um, we had, I think when they broke up, we had press attention around the house. I remember that happening a little bit. Um, And that wasn't particularly enjoyable, um, including, I think, some, you know, someone... I think there's some people around the doorstep and I think there's some people who sort of followed us to school and, and that. And I think our mum needed money for a, to continue a kind of court battle so that she could get enough to, um, you know, to continue fighting in court. Cause I think it just wasn't amicable between them. And so that's how she justified selling a story to the media, um, which I wasn't in favor of basically so so how did you let your lack of you know not wanting that to happen come across actually you know what i want to go into we were in they i think both of them got entangled with hello magazine at some point yeah so and i think that was more than one we we certainly were in hello magazine wasn't that more than once well yeah we were in hello magazine once as a family before angus left and then once just you me and our mum and the dogs uh Afterwards. Have you talked about that on the podcast before? Uh, not Hello Magazine specifically, no. Can we talk about that? Because I think that's of course. mega. Yeah. I, I mean, so I remember a little bit about, I don't remember, I think the first one, I remember being at a friend's house on a Saturday morning, having stayed there on Friday night and being picked up very early and told I have to have a bath and not really understanding what was going on. That's my recollection of it. And then it being in Hello Magazine, the pictures, that is. Yeah, I mean, I remember... Yeah, these things sort of just happen to you, I think, when you're a kid. Um, but something that is top of mind is how stage managed those photo shoots are, which is obvious, you know, when now I'm a bit older. But as a kid, I was like, what's going on? They're moving furniture around. Uh, they've brought flowers in. Now, there's a lot of set dressing that goes on. Um, and I guess, you know, yeah. I don't remember if there was hair and makeup or so on. But, that you know, there's, it's very stagey and it's a very uncomfortable thing when it's in your own home. Um, and those images from those photo shoots are still very much in my mind. So it's kind of hard to extrapolate my actual memories from the photos. Um, but the subsequent time, the second time, I really was not pro that at all. Uh, I was very anti that. What age, what age do you think you were then? And how did you, what did you do to show how anti it you were? I guess I was about 12 and I don't remember. This is where this fascinating story could probably be pitched to our mum and she could fill in the blanks. I just I just felt that it all was quite tacky and pointless and unpleasant. Um, yeah. And... Quite impressive, I think, to feel, have those, not have that kind of thought process and those feelings that that age i just think that kind of comes from um i'm not sort of necessarily sort of um bloody hell who's who's the alan partridge guy steve coogan i'm not steve coogan here sort of saying that you know the 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 media mustn't exist there you know there's important part for them to play um but i also when i think of uh Dominic Cummings being total ass um, with uh, his breaking lockdown. I also think, well, there, you know, thank God that kid is only, you know, a few years old, because there are these knock-on effects to the kids. Um, of course, the kids grow up in privilege and luxury, but I think it informs how you then later on interact with all sorts of media. And I just think that because I'd seen a bit more of that, and we'd already had a bit of kind of doorstep action and there had already been a bit of tabloid back and forth with Angus and our mum that just made me increasingly uncomfortable with it and every time a story was sold 
by either side because I think they were both um, passing stories to the media. You know, it just felt uh, increasingly nasty and unnecessary and not very grown up. Hi guys, thanks so much for listening to part one of this episode with Tobias Slater. Please keep listening to part two where he'll tell us about his own experiences of dealing with fame when he had his band uh, signed to Virgin and appeared on Top of the Pops. Please go and download episode two and have a listen. Cheers. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.